arms bleeding. Cried every evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Hey guys, welcome to episode 39 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and my guest is Jesse Olson Moore, founder of the blog Cake Spy and author of the books Cake Spy Presents Sweet Treats for a Sugar-Filled Life and The Secret Lives of Baked Goods, Sweet Stories and Recipes for America's Favorite Desserts. Jessie discusses her struggle with anorexia and how writing about food has helped set her on the road to recovery. It's a really good episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it in just a moment. You'll have to forgive me for being a little hoarse today. Um, I just got back from a weekend in New Orleans, and I think I might have inhaled too much secondhand smoke, but it was worth it. I ate so much amazing food, and it reminded me of how grateful I am to have friends who really love food. And like Jessie, my own recovery was helped immensely by getting involved in the food world and getting interested in food from a cultural standpoint. So her story really resonates with me, and I share a bit about my own history with food writing in this episode. I want to say thanks so much to everyone who's written me emails and submitted surveys. I am woefully behind on everything, so I'm sorry I haven't been able to respond to you guys individually, Um, but just know that I really appreciate the great feedback, and I love reading people's stories. There are so many moments in the surveys that have really touched my heart, but um, I'm going to read one that I thought was really lovely from a woman named Anne in Australia. She said, I would go to the hospital with dad on Saturday morning when I was four or five years old. He's a doctor, and I'd go with him when he did his ward round. Afterwards, he bought me a little Dixie cup of vanilla ice cream. I didn't get to see him much during the week. He worked long hours. Those little cups of ice cream made me feel loved and protected and special because I was with dad. Um, So Anne goes on to say that she's a doctor now herself, um, but she's also had anorexia since she was 16. She's now 29, and despite having been hospitalized a number of times, she's still struggling with it. She says, I feel very guilty about my illness. I feel disabled and ashamed that I'm 29 and still so unwell. I feel like I should be able to just eat. I'm so lucky to have a beautiful family, a job I love, and many friends. I feel like that should be enough to make me want to be well. The prospect of losing my friends and my job should be motivation enough. So that sounds really painful, and um, I want to say thanks so much to Anne for sharing that. And I know it's a hard struggle, but don't give up on yourself. You know, it, it can feel demoralizing at times, but sometimes these things take many years to sort out, and you're not alone in that, believe me. I think sometimes when we put pressure on ourselves to be better because we should, it can actually exacerbate the eating disorder, you know, because eating disorders really thrive on shoulds and self-punishment, and they wither in the face of self-acceptance. So if you can be kind to yourself and try to accept where you're at, and keep looking for new ways to motivate yourself that don't involve self-punishment, that can really help curtail the eating disorder. Um, But of course, it's not that simple. So, And obviously, this podcast is not meant to substitute for medical advice, I should say. That goes for all of listeners. Obviously, this podcast is not medical advice, um, but this I am a nutritionist, and I'm speaking from personal experience in a lot of what I say. So... um, you know, if you want to submit your own survey, go to foodpsychpod.com slash survey for a chance to have your answers read on the podcast. And I actually found Jesse, my guest today, through the survey. So sometimes survey respondents might actually become guests. 
But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for helping improve your relationship with food. The first is my free quiz to assess your relationship with food and see how healthy it is. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen personalized, individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you might fall on the spectrum right now. Take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com quiz. That's christyharrison.com quiz. The second resource I want to share is my intuitive eating online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality, even in its subtle forms, and how to start substituting healthy thoughts instead. I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control. And I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating. And so, so, so much more. Several participants have shared that the course has helped them make peace with their quote off-limits foods already. As one participant put it after trying one of their quote unquote bad foods, I felt free, sweet, sweet freedom. Why was I so afraid of this food? I doubt I'll feel the need to buy another package when this one's gone, but just knowing it's off the bad list tastes and feels like a huge epiphany. What a moment of power. Participants are also having major revelations about how the diet mentality is hanging on in hidden ways. As one participant put it, before doing this module, I really thought I had given up the diet mentality. Now I realize that although I consciously reject dieting, I still have plenty of work to do towards accepting myself as I am. It was great. It really helped me identify what I need to work on by bringing it to my full awareness. And yet another participant shared this beautiful revelation she had in the course. My worth is not my weight or my looks, but my heart, mind, and soul. I need to trade in my self-judgment for self-love and compassion. It feels impossible some days, but I'm going to do my best. I deserve it. If you'd like to join others on this intuitive eating journey and have some beautiful revelations of your own, go to christyharrison.com course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com course. And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in food psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and reviews sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. And now without further ado, let's talk to Jesse Olson more. She and I are sitting at my dining table in Brooklyn eating cookies. And you said cookies were a really big thing for you. That was a food that you love and maybe a food that you've also had an issue with in the past. Mm. So tell me more about your relationship to cookies. Well, I grew up by the Jersey Shore mm-hmm. and... I think that it's true in New York City, too. But part of the experience of walking into a bakery Mm. is in the Italian bakeries where I grew up, coming across this immense cookies by the pound sort of display. So for me, cookies have always been like a food of bounty and happiness and excitement Mm. because one of the most exciting things about walking into a bakery is choosing what you want yeah, and the journey of that. So cookies have always felt like a friendly, accessible little treat mm-hmm. to me. 
Yeah, that makes sense because they are associated with this time in childhood where food was probably not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and did you did you find that you kind of went away from them and came back or, you know, throughout your journey? Well. Had some issues with them? What's interesting about my journey through disordered eating is that I never stopped eating dessert. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at times, cut every other single thing out of my diet. Yeah. But I never stopped. But I think that in terms of what you said about coming back to cookies, yes, because, um, you know, they they stopped being a treat so much when they were seen as the enemy that took me away from eating any other food. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but now I feel like I am coming back around to enjoying them for what they are, which is, you know, a probably unnecessary but awfully nice part of life. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess necessi- like that concept of necessity is so interesting because yeah. there is sort of a psychological necessity, I think, to treats and interesting things that aren't necessarily giving you the nutrients you need, mm-hmm. but they're a little extras, little fun things in life. But there's this concept in our society now that like you shouldn't have that, right? Like every diet, every sort of crash diet in the world is, you know, trying to get people to cut out desserts and fun things. And so true. I, um, once was interviewing a bakery owner who in her previous life had been a dietitian. Oh, wow. And, you know, I mean, of course, probably everybody asks her like, what's up with that? Right. It's just an interesting little factoid, but, uh, she had a very interesting response, which was, uh, uh, to paraphrase, I believe that what we get mentally from treats far outweighs any possible physical detrimental things. Yes. So what you're, I don't want to sound too woo-woo about it, but <laughs> what you're giving your soul yeah, uh, is nutrition in a different way. Absolutely. And so in that way, you know, I, I think that I was being a little flippant when I said that things like cookies are not necessary, but, you know, physically, no, we don't need right. them, but mentally we do need to treat ourselves. Otherwise mm-hmm. we'll, we'll just go nuts. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's well said. <laughs> and so tell me about your, um, the history of your disordered eating. Like when, how was your relationship to food in childhood and when did things change for you? You know, it's so interesting to look back because I think that while my eating disorder seriously onset during my teen years Mm -hmm. uh you know how in movies there's always foreshadowing oh yeah when i look back at my own life there were definitely moments of foreshadowing Mm -hmm. from the time i was very young like um you know my mother had a very restricted diet Mm -hmm. that was kind of uh enforced by default on the kids Mm -hmm. because, you know, she had certain quirks, like no crackers were allowed, Um, no bread other than rye bread. Uh, Interesting. Peanut butter, but no jelly. So there were some weird little food rules that I I didn't even know existed until I had context in my later life. But 
also treats were always hid from us. Mm. So we became early experts on where the hiding places were. Mm-hmm. But so there was always this kind of furtive relationship with sweets for me. Yeah. Like, you know, you'd have to find where mom hid the Cadbury mini eggs. Oh, and then wow. I remember being like seriously six years old and discovering that I could like make an incision in the bag and extract them. Oh my God. So like serious. And you know, I would do it along the seam so that you could tape it and it was kind of hid (laughs) and you could never take too many. Wow. Because she would know. Yeah. Because if you take too Mm. many, then you're busted. Right. But if you take just a few, then, you know, your mom's like, gosh, they fill these with less every year. Right. you know, there's that fine line. Yeah. So things like that happened, mm-hmm. which, you know, That's interesting. M- might be normal, but considering what happened later, it, it kind of yeah. seems like it could have played into it. Oh, totally. I think a lot of people who have rigid rules around food growing up end up with relationships to food that are disordered in some way. Sure. Maybe not full-blown eating disorder necessarily, but like there is that, you know, that furtiveness or that guilt, secrecy yeah. around it. And um, when the treats are off limits, what do you think happens when the kids are exposed yeah. to treats? They stuff their faces. Exactly. Um, because they don't know when they're going to have that again. Yeah. So that idea of scarcity. But I think that it really started to become a problem when I was kind of 12, 13. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... Honestly, I still kind of think it's stupid what set it off, but there was one single incident, and it was like an ancient cousin, Mm -hmm. not actually ancient, but he was in college, (laughs) and I don't even know why he was visiting, but he uh, made a comment. I was dressed for my eighth grade dance, and he made some comment about how thick my ankles were. Oh, no. And I'm sure that he doesn't even remember it. Right. But for me... What I heard was like, you are wrong. Yeah. You know, and I felt like so cute and hopeful Mm. in my eighth grade dance dress. And it's like, that crushed me. Totally. And so it was like within days that I started doing exercises, like Mm -hmm. to slim down my ankles. Oh, God. (laughs) I totally identify with that. I had a few things that I did. And it's like, no, that's not going to do it. I would stand on the bottom stair and like lift my toes and then lower them. And I don't even think that's an ankle stretch. Right. It's 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 more of a calf stretch. But, you know, then I started reading books and I'm like, oh, you can't just slim down one part Mm. of your body. So it snowballed. You know, I uh, started exercising and then I lost weight because I had gone on a trip where I was too shy to eat. Oh, really? <laughs> and I was rewarded with all these compliments because mm. I lost weight. And so I feel like that kind of reinforced it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think it was just the a, a series of things that snowballed. And this basically led to over 15 years of disordered eating. Oh. Um, and I feel that I'm a little bit unusual in that I progressed from dieting to bulimia, which that is, unfortunately, a fairly natural progression. But then I cured myself of bulimia and, but what I really did was turned anorexic. Right, right. (laughs) I think that's kind of a... So I 
Um, an unfortunate side effect of trying to cure yourself and not getting help. Yes. It's like you do what you can, but you know, yeah, the disordered mindset has already set in. So true because, you know, had you asked me at one point, I would say recovery would be not throwing up anymore. Yeah. But I needfully, uh, (laughs) changed that definition. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I feel like I've got like my passport fully punched with the um, eating disorder central. Definitely. Which, you know, I'm, I'm not happy that I went through that, but uh, I am happy that I'm seeing the light now. And I feel like by sharing my experience on my website, Mm -hmm. um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from others that they're going through the same thing. Wow. So knowing that is what keeps me sharing mm-hmm. because in one way it's kind of cathartic to get it off my chest, yeah. but it, you can have your catharsis and move on. But when I know that reading it can help someone else, that keeps me going. Absolutely. I, I totally identify with that. And I think that's why I've started sharing on the podcast and mm-hmm. continue to share with my clients and, you know, mention my story on other people's podcasts. And cause it just, it does help so much to know somebody else has gone through it and that there's another side, you know, that you can get through to the other side. So sharing with somebody who's less far along on their journey that like, no, it's possible to get where I am, wherever that is, you know, mm-hmm. is, is hopeful, I think. Yeah. And it keeps me redefining what recovery is. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I ask what is recovery to you? So to me, I think recovery, this is a, a question that's come up a lot at like, eating disorder conferences. And so I've seen other people's answers and kind mm-hmm. of incorporated them into my own, I think. Hmm. Um, but I think to me, it's it's similar to what Carolyn Costin says about, about recovery or recovered, being recovered, is that, um, you know, food takes its place as one thing in your life. It's not given undue influence. It doesn't have power over your conception of yourself or who you are, you know, your relationship to food is just one of the relationships in your life. And Mm. you're not fearing any particular food. You're not overly attached to any particular food in a way that's disordered. You know, I mean, attachment to food is great, but you're not, um, you're not binging, you're not engaging in behaviors anymore. And you're not really engaging, you know, in thoughts anymore either, like Mm -hmm. beating yourself up over what you did or didn't do. Um, that you're eating intuitively. I really feel that eating intuitively is kind of the last step in recovery for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> that and, and the body image, I think. Yes. Uh, the body image recovery is a whole other thing. And I don't even know if if one should include like body love or body acceptance in a definition of recovery because sometimes that takes so long to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it did. So I think, I think my sense of recovery has been very bolstered by the body image recovery piece as well. Um, And then, yeah, I think it's also, you know, not letting your weight or your shape influence your idea of yourself. Yeah. I think that's a big one. Yeah. Because I still suffer from that, you know, my self-worth. Yeah. If I feel like my pants are too tight or something, then everything in the world sucks. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so crazy how that happens. Yeah. And you know, it's like, I feel like I'm getting, you know, more and more recovered. Mm -hmm. I'm on the right path. And then I can just really easily be shot down by something like that still. 
I had a phase like that too, a long phase like that. Yeah. And, and my recovery journey was so convoluted. I mean, I think like you, I never really, I didn't have a linear path into it. And we sort of connected over the fact that we both were in the food industry at some (laughs) level while still having an eating disorder. And I think that's, that's something that I have just started sharing and becoming comfortable opening up about because, I mean, really, I the first time I ever shared any of my history was on the podcast, and it was in an episode where I talked to two other people who were involved in the food world who all kind of had non-diagnosed eating disorders, yeah. and it, at the time, I called the podcast Anorexish, and it was about you know people who have symptoms but are never really diagnosed, and so is it disordered or is it... Is it on the spectrum? Mm -hmm. Is it really anorexia or whatever other kind of, you know, eating disorder not otherwise specified? Yeah. Um, And we talked about kind of the the pitfalls of, you know, getting diagnosed and the the criteria that make it so hard to sometimes get an accurate diagnosis. I know. And it's so ridiculous. Ridiculous. Because, you know, it's funny because in my opinion, uh, I mean, I I don't want to downplay the physical symptoms of an Mm -hmm. eating disorder at all, but it's the mental stuff that is the worst and the hardest Mm -hmm. to kick. So I think that um, that is a really interesting thing to hit upon. And I think that a lot of people think that they're like not even like, like bad enough to have a real eating disorder because they don't meet the specific criteria of, you know, under this percent BMI, et cetera. Exactly. I really think that that whole system is flawed because even if you are technically subclinical, mm-hmm. then if you're still having those thoughts, then it can be just as ruinous to yeah. your everyday life. Exactly. If food and thoughts about food and thoughts about your body are governing your life, mm-hmm. then you have a problem. <laughs> like it's It doesn't really matter what the scale says. And also, I think as I've learned more about this, I've realized that people's natural BMI, you know, varies a lot, right? The quote unquote Mm -hmm. normal range. And then, you know, there's debate about it, but I think that like even the overweight range should be considered normal and, you know, obesity doesn't have all these health effects that people think it does. So, you know, whatever, that's a whole other conversation. BMI is flawed, but, um, even within the quote unquote normal range, there's a a wide variation in where people's bodies naturally fall. Sure. So if you're someone who's naturally a little bigger and you lose weight down to something that's, you know, basically starve yourself down or, or, you know, exact other, use other means to get there, uh, and you get to a place that's still quote unquote normal, but you are starved for your body, you're under what you're supposed to be, your biological set point, I think that's a real problem too. And that actually does cause some of the physical problems that you might see with, you know, someone who is severely underweight. Yeah. And I think that's started to become understood at least in the latest edition of the DSM they have uh, a criterion now for atypical anorexia and they've sort of opened up the um, other not otherwise specified criteria yeah. to be a little more inclusive so the weight criterion doesn't have to be such a part of it but you know I think it's still hard to find clinicians who are who are able to really pinpoint what's going on for someone and sometimes like you know therapists will miss it because they aren't Mm -hmm. trained in eating disorders sometimes dietitians will miss it some dietitians and nutritionists have disordered eating themselves actually a a high percentage I believe it and food professionals and food professionals yes yeah and I think that that actually kind of makes sense because it's like 
I, I think that that was very much true for me because yeah. it's like um, you're obsessed with food, so why not yeah. make some productive use of it? Exactly. Because the other thing about um, people with eating disorders is that they're usually very resourceful, smart people. Mm-hmm. So they want to make use of it, mm-hmm. you know? And, Absolutely. Uh, and if they're at a place in their life or their career where that path is sort of malleable, they might... Sure you know, go down a career path that involves food in some way. Yeah. And it makes absolute sense to me too. And it actually allows you a lot of control uh, over your food. Definitely. Yeah. So that's interesting. I'd like to talk more about that Mm because with you, like you started writing about sweets and, you know, you said on your website that it was sort of from a, a very like pulled out Pull, you know, pulled back sort of um, objective, quote unquote, perspective, where yeah. you used like the 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 we voice, even though it was just you on your blog. It was like a you know a, a third person kind of perspective, mm-hmm. and you didn't have to necessarily eat the food. You would just write about it, and then at a certain point, it became you became confronted with the need to eat some of these sweets that you were writing about. Yeah, and that was sort of a crisis point, right? Like, yeah, because you did sure. ha- have to give up control in some way. Yeah, and for me, uh, there were there were a few really hard parts because mm-hmm. the more known you become as a food writer or as a blogger, uh, the more like networking opportunities you have, whether yeah. it's meeting for coffee or doing an interview like this mm-hmm. or, um, you know, bringing food somewhere. Yeah. So it just becomes necessary to have like what I kind of think of as gorilla food, like right. food that comes at you when you're not expecting it. Yeah. Totally. Uh, or, you know, going to an event when someone says, taste this. Right. And that is like the worst thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not in my plan. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, and you know, just as I started doing, uh, I got, I began to be hired to do recipes for people and mm. you can only have your significant other or friends taste things for you for so long. Yeah. And you know, I was really bad. I would be fearful of like, of taste, putting my finger in the batter and tasting wow. it. I'd be like, how many calories was in that? Mm. Um, so it was, it was a really scary thing to, yeah. to, you know, because I really liked, I've always liked clean amounts of food, mm. like finite portions that usually I have portioned out for right. myself that feel safe to me. Right. And for me to go to an event where I have like five different tastes of things mm-hmm. is very scary. Yeah. Because it's not within that rigid idea of what yeah. I think food should be. But that having been said, the more I was exposed to it, I wouldn't say that I'm is still today I wouldn't say that I'm 100% over mm-hmm. that but it's become far easier because you know like uh it's almost like doing a cost and lo- loss a profit oh, and yeah. loss analysis in my head it's like well what I get in terms of socialization points and you know good <laughs> yeah. feelings otherwise might be worth those like frightening calories that I right. consumed <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. When I first um, started writing about food, it was I was in a similar place. I was very restrictive and rigid, you know, in my non-eating time, you know, non-professional context, like you know, very controlled. But I kind of decided that, you know, 
professionally, it would help me a lot more to be adventurous, adventurous and open and trying everything that came at me mm-hmm. when I was at an event or, you know, out with a colleague or whatever. So I, I think I kind of increased the control I had around food otherwise, but mm-hmm. I decided I did kind of that same profit and loss calculus. And I was like, if I want to make it as a food writer, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very helpful to me. And actually, it that mindset sort of started a little earlier for me, too, because I was dating a guy who was a foodie before that. And that's how I even got interested in food writing and kind of started down that path. So it was similar with him. I was like, okay, when I'm with him, I have to be adventurous because that's what he wants from a girlfriend. And I want to be the perfect girlfriend. I want to, yeah. you know, <laughs> do what he wants. So I'm going to do that. But then, you know, in my time... Aside, you know, outside of that, I was being very restrictive and weird with food. Um, Mm. But, you know, I think, and I I think now working in the field, I'm like, obviously that's still disordered eating, that's still not recovered. But at the time, I think it was a helpful step for me out of it. And it helped, you know, helped me continue to make those positive steps. Yeah. Because for me, like, you know, I, I think I've written about it on my website, but there was this really scary moment when I was going to a bakery to interview a baker and like I knew that I was like going to have to eat a cupcake Mm -hmm. so it's like I planned and planned for this stupid cupcake and I didn't eat all day beforehand so that I could make the illusion of being completely effortless about right. eating this like oh me eat a cupcake do it all the time no big deal yeah, yeah like <laughs> like yeah this is my life right um but I think that while I can say that that is definitely still disordered mm-hmm. in another way it was being like you controlling about my other food right. intake it, it was a stepping stone. Yeah. And I think that after a while, when more and more things would happen like that, there was just a natural like crossover Yeah, when it started to be not as fearful or you, right. know, you don't have to finish the cupcake. Yeah. that And that was a huge oh, thing to get revelation. over. Like yeah. you don't have to finish it. Yep. Because exactly. part of my thing was like, well, this is my portion. I have to finish it. Right. Uh, the clean plate yeah yeah Yeah. very much so but it's like you don't have to yeah exactly well did you find too that as you recovered more and more and became you know maybe less starved overall that sweets lost some of their power sure yeah Yeah. and uh baking my own too helped take some of the fear out of it Mm -hmm. because it's like it wasn't this this scary thing that I didn't know what was in it and it probably like had you know like I just the idea of fat and calories would put me into a panic Mm -hmm. Uh, but it became a thing that I created so I could actually see how the butter and sugar and ingredients went together and it's like you have this full tactile relationship with the food when you're making it yeah and I think that once you have that, it takes the fear out of it because it's it's like, well, it's just made with objects from my fridge and my cabinet. Exactly. It's not, it's not really the big bad bear. Yeah. That's a great point. That was another powerful thing. And Mm -hmm. it took the fear out of just being around cakes and sweets because, you know, if you have an eating disorder, it's always like a potential trigger. Mm -hmm. Like that could be the thing that I really mess up on. Yeah. But when you've created it, you 
you know, you're kind of like, oh, that thing, I made it. No big right. deal. Right. It's less less scary, less triggering. Yeah. Although I found that for me, one of the pieces that was really important in recovering my relationship to sweets was not being so restrictive outside of them too. Cause I definitely, for me, it still would hold the power of like, I might binge on this. And that was one of my, you know, behaviors was that I would restrict, 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 and then binge. So, you know, sweets in particular were something I could never stop. And now I've Mm. learned that, you know, physiologically that makes a lot of sense because they have a lot of fat and a lot of sugar and things that you're missing. You know, if you're calorically restricted, you're going to go for something that's, you know, the most energy dense. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. That's like a survival survival. Mm -hmm. That's. I had never thought about it that way, but that, I mean, nobody, maybe I shouldn't say nobody, Mm -hmm. but I don't know anyone who's ever binged on carrots. No. <laughs> no. Me neither. Like, I actually, fruit I have heard of. Yeah. And I have heard of people considering it a binge, but it's oh, because wow. they were okay. already starved and yeah. overly restricted and not allowing themselves anything but fruit. So in their mind, it was a binge. But, you know, that's kind of a more of a more of a subjective type of thing. Sure. But yeah, definitely in terms of like a full on binge, like loss of control kind of situation. Yeah almost never with something that's not a sweet or mm-hmm. somehow forbidden. I think that's the it's always the thing. It's a forbidden forbidden food. like fat, carbs, right. whatever whatever might be labeled decadent or yeah. devilish in, right. in women's magazines, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's always those things. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's no coincidence. I think there's yeah. you know, so much more power in something that is labeled as off limits. Yeah. And the minute you legalize things, I mean that's part of intuitive eating is this concept of legalizing foods where you can have anything you want, any amount you want really, but it's up to you and your body. You know, you can you can trust your body that once you've get comfortable listening to your hunger and fullness cues. You're never going to let yourself go crazy on something. Yeah. Maybe once in a while you'll overeat or whatever, but you're not going to, you know, you're no, you're going to know that you'll feel bad if you do something, you know, if you overeat something too much. So you'll probably dial it back, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because as I got further in recovery, I started, I guess it would be like the equivalent of what some people would call a cheat day, uh-huh. but you know, the idea of like eating intuitively all the time, mm-hmm. way too much. Yeah. Like yeah. mind exploding. Right. But the idea of doing it maybe one day a week yeah. or maybe even one meal a week, mm-hmm. that I felt like I could handle. Yeah. So, you know, I decided it was usually like Friday or Saturday mm-hmm. because those are like restaurant days, more yeah. social. And I would just like be able to eat. Mm-hmm. So like if I wanted to get an appetizer and dinner or right. something like that, it was okay. Yeah. Um, And what I found was that I would rarely eat like an excessive amount on that day, even though it was okay. Because all of a sudden, when the forbidden aspect was taken away, then all of a sudden I started to notice when I was full. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh wow, I can have like cheesecake or whatever for dessert, but I'm, you know, I, I would be able to recognize, well, no, actually, Maybe I don't feel like that because I'm actually yeah. kind of full. Or right. maybe I will wait an hour. Yeah. And so for me, that has been a way of reconnecting with my body's 
actual hunger. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's such a great step. I mean, that's yeah. that's something that I've told clients too, is like, you know, incorporating it at one meal day or one snack, you know, try intuitive eating in the context mm-hmm. of a meal plan. You don't have to just go full, full bore into intuitive eating, but you know, bring it in in a way that feels comfortable to you. So you kind yeah. of came upon that on your own and yeah. gave yourself that little step. Yeah. And also another thing that I've done is, um, you know, to avoid pre-planning. Uh-huh. So uh, a way that that has been very helpful, a, a way that I've found myself able to do that is to go to places I've never been. Yeah. Because if you know every item on the menu at a place, mm-hmm. then you'll gravitate toward things that feel safe to you. Right. But if you go someplace where you've never even seen the menu, yeah. then it kind of forces you to step outside of that safety zone yeah. in, in a good way, That's great. I think. Totally. That's a great tip. Yeah. Did you, did you find that that was the case with working in the food industry that more and more you had to try unfamiliar things? So sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, beyond sweets too. Yeah. Right. Because I think that it was actually, which is maybe a little bit unusual, but since I had always eaten sweets, Mm -hmm. even at my like lowest and highest weight, Mm -hmm. it was never something I really cut out. For me, it was rediscovering other foods, mm-hmm. like because other it, it was like sweets and then other food. Right. <laughs> For me. Oh, that's so, funny. like and other foods were this off-limits, scary. Yeah, things like yeah. you know, I'd be like, well, I've got to eat another food. So I would mm-hmm. like I ate a lot of soup and like salad. Yeah, but I would. I would never go to a restaurant and actually look at the menu. Mm. I would basically just look for like the least caloric thing so that I could move on to dessert. Uh huh. Um, That's interesting. Whereas now it was like, wow, well, what do I want? Yeah. <laughs> and I still find myself just sticking to like the beginning section of the mm. menu, being like, let me get the smallest thing. Right. Uh, just mentally, I. I can now power through it, mm-hmm. but it's it's cool because all yeah. of a sudden like. Like three quarters more of the menu has been opened up to me. Totally. And like in life too. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's so amazing how that how that functions in yeah. life and in eating. It's not just about that. Yeah. And like rediscovering like breakfast. Yeah. Like like wow, breakfast There's is awesome. Some great breakfast out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So when did you when do you feel like that started to happen? That opening up of options I think I think that probably it was when I started my website Mm -hmm. and I started my website in 2007 that things started to happen Mm -hmm. but it I was still very you know I was underweight I I wasn't healthy Mm -hmm. but the wheels were starting to turn um and honestly I think that um what really kind of kicked me into gear was the dissolving of a romantic relationship. Mm. And after that, I went into a deep depression Mm. and I started to get worse. Yeah. Um, I started to become severely underweight Mm. and I, you know, it, it was just like, it was my wake up call because I, I felt like I had gotten out of an unhealthy relationship and now I was just shooting myself in the foot. Mm. So it was just like, I, I realized that I had to either live or die basically, Mm -hmm. because 
I was breathing. I, I wasn't like on death's door. My heart wasn't going to stop, but I didn't feel like I was living. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was in an outpatient eating disorder group at that time mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. I lived mm-hmm. there for a little while. And a girl said something that was very meaningful to me. She um, was talking about how after work, she had gone with her coworkers to a bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like a beer type of bar. Uh-huh. And a lot of anorexics that I know are very scared of these types of bars. Yes. Very scared of alcohol in general, but especially scared of beer. beer. Mm-hmm. Because that's like the big bad daddy of like yeah it's got carbs yeah carbs and calories like right bad times Mm -hmm. but so everyone's getting beer and she's like am i going to like be with these people or am i going to be and i love this phrase alone with my bones oh and wow so she had a freaking beer and (laughs) she was there with those people and i think that uh, you know I had already kind of been at this point where I realized that I wasn't getting better, but that group very much helped me decide like, yeah, I do want to live. Yeah. I like, I'm good at stuff. I, I don't want to just exist. Right. You want to be in the world yeah. and engage with people. Yeah. And bring something to the world. What did you do after that? What did you, do you feel like it started kind of immediately or was it baby steps? <laughs> well, it, um, it's funny because the still now quite faint, but that eating disordered voice in mm-hmm. my head says, well, what happens is you got fat. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get fat, um, but I gained weight, mm-hmm. which was necessary. Absolutely. But for me, it was very scary Yeah, because I feel like I didn't. I really didn't have that poor of body image. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't have great body image, but the fear was less like that I needed to change how I was, but that I always needed to maintain it. Mm. So any, you know, it was fine to get thinner, but if my pants ever felt tight, it was like the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. So basically I had to deal with getting healthier by um, stopping counting calories mm-hmm. or for the most part. Yeah. Um, and for a while, I had to throw out anything that didn't have elastic mm. in the waistband yeah. because that was a huge thing for me. Yeah. And to, you know, because like if I went to a clothing store and the extra small didn't fit me, I just wouldn't buy it. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, right. The size had yeah, so power I, over you. Yeah. yeah, it was stupid. Right. So I needed to get over that. Mm-hmm. And it took, gosh, now it's probably been like close to four years since I kind of had that realization like yeah Yeah. I want to be in the world and I feel like in some ways you know like you know sometimes I'm no longer the smallest person in the room and that took a lot of work to be okay with yeah but I no longer feel like crap all the time yeah like I mean I still don't like the cold but it's not as severe as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm nicer. I'm way nicer than I used to be. Um, yeah. And I just, like, desire pleasure more. That's um, amazing. It, you know, like, I, I enjoy doing things. I'm not as closed off. Mm-hmm. So I feel that 
what I have put into honest and real recovery, mm-hmm. I've gotten back. That's awesome. Yeah. And you, it sounds like you've kind of done that calculus in your head too of like, what do I get from an eating disorder versus what do I get from living fully? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's something that I think it's, it's hard to see when you're really in the midst of it, but when you look back or when you start to really, when something wakes you up and you can see your life more clearly, it's like, yeah, of course I choose life. Of course I want to not live like this anymore. Like, well, and also that eating disorder group I was in was very eye-opening in other ways because it's kind of funny because you were talking about that eating disorder is not otherwise specified, specified, Mm -hmm. which um, this kind of opened my eyes to it mm. in the eating disordered world like they can be very clicky yeah and they're like oh you have ednos <laughs> like you don't have anything right like and I they know. would be competitive like yeah. well you know more anorexics die and it's like well right. you know, like why like, are we well, competing over this bulimics have their teeth rot out like seriously do you yeah. hear yourselves uh, like but they in some ways they wore their official diagnosis as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And I I was like, I don't want that. Right. I, you know, I, I don't want my eating disorder to be who I am. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, how did you, how did you have enough distance from it to realize that? Well, I don't know. Perhaps it helped that in the group, a lot of them were younger than me. Mm. So I felt like I had a little bit more experience in life. Yeah. But I think that just seeing them as a mirror to myself, um, it was it was like, am I still like this? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, a lot of the people in the group were 18 and oh. I was like 30. Yeah. And I was like, you... You know, for one thing, my heart went out to them because yeah. I'm like, you're all so smart and talented. Don't let this be the thing that is your life. Yeah. But then seeing myself reflected in them, I'm like, enough. Mm-hmm. Enough of that. Yeah. You know, like how much time do you waste having an eating disorder? Seriously. Like how much real estate does it take up in your mind? And, you know, it was funny because... In recovery, I don't know if you ever found this, but Mm -hmm. I got bored a lot. Oh, yeah. Because there was so much time that my eating disorder previously took up Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden I was like, wow, how many hours are there till the end (laughs) of the day? I know. I totally experienced that. And I think I transferred addictions a little bit, unfortunately, which I was able to see with enough therapy, but I, I transferred addictions, I think, to unhealthy relationships, codependency, fixing people. Yeah. So, you know, fortunately that wasn't super long lived, but I think, I think the the thing is, you know, once you get rid of the eating disorder for many people, the eating disorder is like a convenient distraction from difficult emotions. Oh yeah. And once you take the eating disorder away or start to take it away, you're going to feel those difficult emotions and you have to do something with them. You know, if you're able to process them and let them move through you and let them go, then you can start to really heal. But I think a lot of times when people start to take that first step out of, you know, into recovery out of the eating disorder, it's still scary to feel those feelings and it still feels like they're going to overwhelm you and swallow you and you'll never escape feeling terrible, you know? Yeah. So it's easy to transfer, you know, look to something else to fill that void. 
and maybe, you know, hopefully it's something a little healthier. Hopefully it's something that's not going to, you know, kill you or make you worse. But I mean, of course, the ideal is to just feel your feelings and not have to do anything to assuage them, you know? Yeah. I, I believe that when you earnestly begin to enter recovery, because I think that I had tiptoed around it mm-hmm. for many years, but when you really do it, um, the world is like high definition. Yeah. Like, and you can feel again, which mm-hmm. is great, but then the world is also filled with sharp corners Yeah, when you start that recovery process because you can feel good, but you can also feel really bad. Totally. And those were the moments when previously your thoughts or behaviors went to food. And when you don't have them, it's very scary to just be with yourself. Yeah. So I think that it is natural um, and honestly, like inevitable without real work mm-hmm. to turn to other addictions yeah, absolutely. Uh, of any sort just to, to numb that pain. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I definitely did it for too long, I think mm-hmm. in, you know, the early stages of recovery. And then I also did it with yoga and meditation and the things that were actually sort of the gateway out of it, the things that were meant to help me start feeling my feelings. I was, you can be controlling and perfectionistic about anything. So that became how I was controlling and perfectionistic. I wanted to read all the books about meditation. I wanted to do all the yoga and like, you know, would like arrange my schedule around going to classes. And, you know, it just, it was very, it it was, (laughs) and looking back on it now, I'm like, God, it, it just, come on, like, why do this, you know? OMG, I totally did the same thing <laughs> like, with yoga. I totally uh, did. That's and crazy. it's funny because um it, it won yoga won in the end because yeah. I got into it and probably for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I was like me too. you know like I know that I will not be able to eat for that one hour right. <laughs> class and uh, like yoga people are thin. Yeah. <laughs> but um you know yeah, and I was like, yoga people are thin. Yeah. And I'm already, like, kind of flexible, so maybe I'll be good at it. Yeah, yeah. Like, because I didn't want to be the worst yoga. one. Right. But it was interesting because yoga just kept on getting deeper. Yeah. And I felt like um, even if I didn't get into it for the right reasons, it ended up doing the right things for me. Totally. In the I end. completely identify with that. Yeah. And I think that's actually a lot of people's you know relationship to yoga is like they'll stumble into it maybe for the wrong reasons but it does win it does tend to yeah. win I mean if you let it you have to I think you have to let the philosophy in and for some people that feels a little woo-woo and like totally out there but yeah but I've got to tell you I just did um like a three-week yoga immersion oh my god yeah That's in awesome. Asheville North Carolina Ooh. and I was really worried that I was going to be going into like a room full of vegans yeah but it was actually really great mm-hmm. in terms of eating disorder recovery because, oh, like, they were, like, one day someone came into class with a bag from Chick-fil-A. Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, my God, yoga wow. people are great. But That's it awesome. was like, <clears throat> pardon. Mm-hmm. It made me realize, once again, that people come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. And that, like... You know, it's possible to be into yoga mm-hmm. and to treat yourself. Totally. So I I loved that. 
That's amazing. Yeah. That's really healing. I, I definitely encountered a few people in my yoga journey early on who were flexible and, you know, in their eating and loved mm-hmm. food and loved trying new things. And then I encountered some vegans who were proselytizing types. You yes. Know? And that is, I think, the unfortunate drawback of yoga is that yeah. there are some teachers and some, you know, guru types who will espouse a certain way of eating and a certain way of living. And like that yeah. can be so attractive to someone who's recovering from an eating disorder because it's like sure that because it's like well again. and it also gives you an excuse yeah exactly for, you know like oh well this is my philosophy right and exactly. it's, it's not an eating disorder it's a philosophy it's a way of life yeah exactly you can hide behind that yeah whereas if you really get honest with yourself like where is that veganism coming from yes yeah. oh gosh i um just as a brief aside i was yeah. in a yoga class uh, around the holidays and there are two women talking and they're talking about Christmas cookies mm-hmm. and they were like like yoga one-upping each other oh, wow. like um oh well I never eat butter or dairy and the other one's like you know I don't even crave sweets anymore and <laughs> like you know like I haven't oh. I haven't eaten gluten since 1996 you know like oh, this stuff. and oh. I, I guess they saw me because I I, I always forget that people can see me too. Uh-huh. I'm like, that I, you're not invisible. I'm, yeah, I'm, to their I'm such a people watcher. But so yeah. clearly they've noticed that I'm watching them mm-hmm. and they uh, include me and they're like, um, and they're like, oh yeah, what what do you do about Christmas cookies? And I was like, I write about sweets. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> and it was like, I love it. Like you could have heard a pin drop after yeah. that. <laughs> They're like, wow, this is not what we expected. <laughs> yeah. It was... That's awesome, though, to be able to give that kind of perspective to somebody. Yeah. Not everybody is crazy about food, you know? Yeah. Well, and honestly, like, uh, sometimes a little sugar jolt can help you do better in yoga class. Totally. Yeah, if you're well-fueled yeah. and energized, like, your little. performance is better. Yeah. You know? Little, not a lot. Yeah. It can yeah. help. Definitely. And, and more importantly, I think, you know, sugar is not the toxin that people like to think it is. I mean, no, I've heard, <laughs> like, I've heard people refer to sugar as the white devil yeah. and um, being more addictive than alcohol. <sighs> and I mean, I, I don't know, maybe for some people it is, but I find that type of conversation extremely unproductive mm-hmm. and harmful. Yeah. I, I find that I honestly I think that black and white thinking on just about anything can be unhealthy. Yeah. But um I I really get up in arms about the sugar thing. Yeah. Because or like people who will say, Oh, you'll live five years longer if you cut sugar from your diet. But why? Right. Why would you want to live five extra years without sugar? Totally. If yeah, five extra years at the end of your life is that you know eighty five or ninety ninety five yeah. hundred? Like, I don't know. I'd rather enjoy the time I have here. Yeah. By nice. eating sugar along the way when I feel like it. Yeah. Enjoy that joyless life. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> oh, totally. I mean, it's you got to think about the bigger picture. Like, how clinically significant is that? That's yeah. Not, uh, who cares? I, I think that, you know, going back to your point, I mean, it's it's like an unpopular statement because it's just so sensible, uh-huh. but everything in moderation. Yeah. Like, you know, 
if you're going to be eating all sugar all the time, that is not good for you. No. But, you know, nothing is good for you if yeah. you're eating it all the time. Exactly. But it, all kale all the time yeah. is not good for you. It so. has a place. Exactly. Yeah, and putting it in its its rightful place, I think, is a huge part of recovery and just something that our society in general could bear to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't need more recipes for healthified versions of things, of, of no. sweets or, you know, admonitions to make our new year clean or yeah. how to avoid holiday cookies or whatever. Like, just enjoy yourselves. Part of me cringes every time I see a recipe that has skinny Oh, yeah. the front of it. I hate that word. I hate that people throw that word around. It's yeah, oh, very triggering for a lot of people. Yeah, I find it very triggering. And very, um, it just, it speaks to like the value we hold in our society yeah. right now, you know? It's like, why and is that, why is that good? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually like, when you get right down to it, I don't have a problem with the idea of it like mm. because if that is what it takes for people to still enjoy treats mm-hmm. then fine but i really have a problem with the labeling yeah and just the mentality that you shouldn't have the real thing right because it also for me it goes into that area of deserving right because it's like well do I not deserve a real Snickers? Mm. Do I need to have a skinny Snickers right. or something like that? That's a great point. Yeah. And I think that um, a lot of disordered eating has a lot of like, I'm not good enough. Yeah. I don't deserve type of mentality. Absolutely. So knowing that you matter, mm-hmm. you know, I, I matter. I deserve yeah. the non-skinny. Exactly. The real thing. The yeah. delicious thing. Yeah. I deserve it too. Not, yeah. Not just everyone else. And that I'm not going to be, I think there's, it's so interesting how eating disorders both make you feel special and make you feel like nothing. It's like that eating disorder voice is so mercurial. So you can feel so high and mighty for doing something, you know, the skinny version or, you know, walking away from it altogether. Yeah. There's, there's an imperiousness to it. Yeah, exactly. But then, then at the same time, it's telling you, you don't deserve life. You know, you don't deserve Mm -hmm to have the kind of happiness that other people have or to let yourself off the hook the way other people can. Oh yeah, that's a huge thing. Thinking that other people are different. Yeah. Like that everyone else is much more okay than you. Totally. There's something wrong with me, but everyone else is fine. Yeah. That comes up again and again with my clients. I came up again and again in my own recovery. Like, yeah. I mean, you are no different than anyone else. Like, why should you think that? I mean, oftentimes it comes from people's childhoods where they were told they were wrong or given the unspoken message that there there was something wrong with them. Yeah. Or to not speak up. Not speak up. Yeah. Don't make a scene of yourself. Right. Your voice doesn't have, doesn't matter. doesn't have weight, you know? Yeah. But I mean, if you're out of that context and you're ruling your own life, why not, you know? Yeah. Why, why do you still have to live under that tyranny? Like, yeah, maybe that's how it was in your family, but yeah, it doesn't have to be how it is in the world. I think too, that once you start allowing yourself real connections, because your eating disorder does not want you to make oh, connections. No. It wants you to be an island, um, yeah. isolated from the world. But I feel like the more I've become exposed to people and like this three week yoga thing was mm-hmm. a great example because you're with the same people day yeah. in, day out. And it's like, 
you start to learn that nobody is okay. Yeah. Nobody is okay. Nobody's okay. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so nice. That is such a good yeah. message. Like, I completely identify that with that. Like I was saying before we started recording um, that, you know, listening to other people's podcasts was really healing for me mm-hmm. because, and I listened to a lot of comedy podcasts, not even recovery specific podcasts, but people would talk about all these issues they had faced. And, you know, comedians are really good, I think, at talking about those things in engaging, entertaining ways and maybe having some perspective on their past. So, you know, hearing all these kind of, you know, funny, but also like, meaningful kind of hurtful sometimes stories you know painful stories about what people went through it's like there's no reason to be ashamed of this stuff this this stuff makes us who we are yeah. you know it, it, it's painful and horrible to go through and we have to honor that and mourn that but also we all have it mm-hmm. we all have something like that you know so being able to laugh about it and being able to be open about it and you know look back on it with a little bit of hindsight, I think, is very yeah. valuable. So yeah, like that, I think, is is a huge lesson in recovery too. Is that like sure. we're all connected, and I think yoga and meditation and like Buddhist philosophy is so helpful with that because mm-hmm. that is those are the big teachings. In yeah, those, um, in those philosophies, but you know, to get there, you have to be open to it, mm-hmm. and you have to go to those places where you're alone with yourself. Yes, I think. yeah, those sometimes scary places definitely like I mean I used to because I had an off and on yoga relationship for years before mm-hmm. I started taking it seriously but I would like I would just leave before the shavasana because oh. I couldn't <laughs> deal with that yeah so I mean past. and that's probably pretty symbolic yeah. but um you know the, the more connections you make the worse it is for your eating disorder totally I think is is just a good lesson because you know, you're you're more likely to feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and it's you're not going to need it anymore. Yeah, you're not going to need to make it your only source of fulfillment or mm-hmm. comfort. So it's going to fight that tooth and nail. I think. Oh yeah, that yeah. sort of those steps into uh, into connection and out of the eating disorder are very fraught for a lot of people. Yeah, and the honesty mm-hmm. because you know. Uh, before I like came out about my eating disorder, I felt deep shame mm-hmm. about it, which is something that you mentioned is yeah. quite common. But it's like, well, who would read my website if they knew for right. years that I made myself throw up? That's disgusting. That's awful. That's terrible. Um, but in a way, I think that it m- made my relationship better with the readers totally. because it's like... Um, it took me out of this echelon of being kind of like a cartoon character who only eats sweets right. to being someone who had real problems totally. that people could relate to. And I feel like, you know, not that I like tell everyone every detail about my life, but the more open you are about those things, even the things that feel very shameful, mm-hmm. um, you'll be rewarded because totally. guaranteed somebody else has gone through it and, you know, when I post things that I'm embarrassed about sometimes, someone will write and say, oh my God, me too. I thought I was the only one. Yeah. And all of a sudden, neither of us are alone anymore. Totally. Oh, that's, I think 
coming out about things is such a powerful process. Yeah. I definitely identify with, with feeling shame, you know, in the beginning of my career too, because like working at gourmet especially you know I felt like everybody else around me had it together with food there would be you know breakfasts of like pastries and stuff a lot of mornings in our office you know someone would bring things in for a meeting or whatever and oftentimes the meetings were in I was in kind of like a big you know office that I shared with a couple other people and we would have the meeting in there because there's a conference table people would leave the suites on there and I was like don't please take these away like you don't understand and I couldn't I couldn't convey what was actually going on I was like oh haha I'll just keep eating them all day and people are like whatever you're fine you know like I, I felt so isolated and disconnected from people in my relationship to food there because I felt like everybody was everybody had had it together and I did it yeah I I felt like for the first several years that I had my website I felt like a fraud yeah so I'm like I'm writing about sweets but inside of myself my relationship is very tumultuous with them because they're like the thing that I crave but also the thing that I consider my enemy right you know yeah how who am I to yeah who am I to say that someone else deserves it when I clearly don't right oh but it's interesting because in doing this podcast and talking to other people who are in the food industry, I feel like more and more of the surveys that I get to sometimes, like I get a lot of surveys from people who are in the food industry in some way, sure. who are you know working around food all the time. And I think, like you said, it's no coincidence. It makes yeah. complete sense that someone who would you know make a career out of writing about something or producing something, you know might have a complex relationship to it, might have been drawn to it to try to master it in some way mm-hmm. or to try to develop a better relationship to it. Yeah. So, you know, you're, in that way, you're totally not alone either. I think there are so many people who... I know someone else, actually, who um, went through her own eating disorder and has a sweets blog, you know? It's like... Yeah. It's very, I think, a very common thing. And probably a lot of the people who are coming to your website, you know, I don't know what, what the percentage would be, but I would imagine that if you're you know, struggling with and sort of obsessed with sweets because you're in your own eating disorder, finding a blog like yours would be so healing and such an important step to, you know, getting help and starting your recovery process. And I mean, I don't know because it's different for everybody, but I think that for some people they need to start out a safe distance. And yeah, I think just given the timing, because food blogs were not what they are today Mm. when I started, Um, but I know that during my anorexic time, I could just look at food magazines and pictures and it was almost like I could at least enjoy it from that distance. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that can just become a purgatory, but it could also be a good first step. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's your first step toward trusting food, being around it on images or on the internet, yeah, whatever, you know, totally. If that's what it takes. Cause I, I do. I mean, I think that as we were talking, it's like realizing that you just have to keep on redefining what recovery is because, yeah. you know, if I had, um, stayed in certain phases, like, you know, replacing food with yoga, mm-hmm. that would not be healthy, but as a stepping stone, it was great. Yeah. So I think that it's very true that Um, for me, recovery is just a moving process. And, you know, as you get better, you see where you need more work. Totally. 
I think that's a really nice way to put it because mm-hmm. it can be so easy to fall into the trap of thinking this is how it'll be forever. Like, yeah. Oh, now I do this. Like, great. You know, and yeah. instead, like, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. You can move and, through these phases. Yeah. And sometimes the things are just downright wacky. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that no eating disorder therapist would suggest, like, be around sweets all the time, nonstop, <laughs> as, like, your therapy program. Yeah. You know, and I mean, there are definitely excruciating moments, but it has worked. Yeah. Well, it, it is like exposure therapy. Sure. Like, yeah. I think, I think, you know, there are eating disorder programs that take people on outings or yeah. expose yeah, there them are. in sort of limited yeah. ways, but it's like you just, you know, immerse yourself, which yeah. is, <laughs> I think, a fascinating <laughs> approach and, you know, can totally work too. Yeah. I, kind of like Clockwork Orange meets Cupcake Bakery. Yeah. <laughs> Like, hold your eyes open and make you stare at cupcakes all day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, tell me what's next for you with your work. Oh. Or can you talk about... Oh, the, yeah. I'll horizon. talk about yeah. everything. I always have a ton of ideas. Um, so right now, I'm, like, trying to decide what the heck I want to do as my next book idea. Because mm. I have, like, a few different ideas. One is to do... And I've, like, worked on the proposal, but it still needs some work um, Mm -hmm. on, like, an illustrated eating disorder memoir. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because I'm an artist, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which would be different for me. So I think that I need to really make sure that I've got right in my mind what I want to do with it. Yeah. Because it's, like, it's pretty raw, you know? Totally. Um, But also kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah. In in an odd way. Like, dark humor. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and then on the other side of the spectrum, I have this idea for a unicorn cookbook Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because I love unicorns. Uh If you go to my website, you'll like definitely find more unicorns. I was in line recently and I have a lot of unicorn, uh, themed apparel Uh and a woman turned around and she said, my daughter has the same shirt. She Mm -hmm. loves unicorns. And I don't know what possessed me, but I was like, I have more unicorns than your daughter. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But it's true. That's hilarious. Anyhow, lots of unicorns. Lots so, of unicorns um, in your life. the possibility of something like that would be really exciting. That's but, awesome. Yeah. What would, involve, would be involved in a unicorn cookbook? A lot of rainbows. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like lots of magic. Yeah. Cone shaped things. Yeah. 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 Lots of cones. Mm hmm. Horns. Horns. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love it. That's yeah. awesome. But unicorns need help because, you know, I mean, they're smart, they're magical, but they don't have hands. So True. Good point. I could really help they them. They can't really bake. Yeah, they can't. Opposable thumbs yeah. are sort of required for that. Yeah, so they need an ambassador such as myself to love it. bring it to the mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So where can people find your website and more uh, information about you? My website is cakespy.com, mm-hmm. like a dessert detective. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm on all of the social media, um, cakespy, except for Instagram, where I'm cakespyblog, because uh, someone took the name. Yes. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> she, pro- she probably has a lot of followers that she can't understand. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and, uh, just traveling, love traveling. Mm. So awesome. 
how many big trips coming up for? Well, I I just got back from I was gone for like two months mm-hmm. in North Carolina for the yoga and then road tripping from New Mexico to the East Coast and back. Oh, wow. And now I've been on this mini adventure on the East Coast. But believe it or not, I don't have any trips planned right now. But I always say that. And then like a month later, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got to go here and here and here. So right. so I, it's never for long that you're home. No, it's never. I, yeah. I've, I've got total wanderlust. And my as a, as a fabulous freelance writer and yeah. illustrator on the subject of sweets, right. um, I... I feel like I am afforded a lot of travel opportunities. So definitely it's, that is wonderful. And I think that that's like a great tool in recovery too. just continuing to expose yourself to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Those reminders that the world is actually pretty big. Yeah. Can be humbling in the best way possible. That's a great point to kind Mm -hmm. of get outside yourself a little bit. Yeah. Outside the eating disorder. Yeah. See other things. Yeah. There are way more interesting and exciting things in the world and it, honestly like eating disorders are totally boring totally i mean boring. you can go over it and i think it's fascinating to discuss mm-hmm. what makes them tick but it, day-to-day life eating disorders are boring and they make you boring yeah like i don't know how many romantic partners have been like just no you did not eat too much you know right, like right. it's you ask the same questions it's over annoying and, over and boring and the world is just so much bigger than that yeah absolutely it's a great yeah. perspective to have mm. come to i hope we can impart that to some anyone listening who's struggling to yeah so well thank you so much for coming on i'm really thank you. really happy we connected <laughs> me too so that's our show Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. And then I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison. And the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched.